You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Please stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word. The reading this evening comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 5 through chapter 12, verse 14. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of the darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is the weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. 
This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are thankful for your word. We pray that you would speak to us, in us, mold us, and make us. Father, the prayer that we sang just a moment ago, that thou and thou only, you are first in our hearts. High King of heaven, our treasure thou art. This is a prayer that is almost too high for us. It's not true for us many points in our lives. So, Father, we pray that you would make it more so of us tonight. Through your word, by your spirit, for the sake of your son, to the glory of you, the Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, tonight is a torch night, so if you are a fourth or sixth grader and want to think through chapters 10 through 12 of Ecclesiastes, you can go with Gail and Patrick Gozier, and we'll have a great conversation wrapping up this wonderful book. I hope this book has been as good for you as it's been for me these last two months. I read in a commentary this week about the 1936 film called Rembrandt. It's about the artist. The entire movie's on YouTube, by the way. I watched much of it this week. I'd really encourage you to find it and at least watch the last two scenes, the last five minutes. At the end, Rembrandt, he's, he's lost his wife, he's lost his house, his fortune, his fame, and now he lives in relative obscurity as the young people around in town, they call him Grandpa. They don't even know who he is or who he was. And the, the, there's a big party going on at the end, and the partying young people take old Grandpa into a tavern, and the drinks start to get poured, and everyone is celebrating and uh, beginning to make toasts, and man after man and young woman make a toast. They say, to beauty, to woman, to youth, to love, to money, to success. And then they turn and say, what about you, Grandpa? You haven't given us your toasts. And he says, I can't think of a toast. But the young women on either side of him, they say, but we, we heard you mumbling something into your glass. And he says, that wasn't a toast, and those weren't my words. They were the words of King Solomon, and they are the best words that I know. And then they, the whole crowd, they say, well, let's have it then. You can be our King Solomon. Teach us wisdom. And he says, as it's quiet, he says, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Uproarious laughter. Bravo, Grandpa. Give us some more, they say. And he says, I've seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a vexation of spirit. More laughter. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increases knowledge increases sorrow. More laughter. Where I perceive that there is nothing better than for a man to rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion. Huge laughter. And then at that moment, a man comes into the tavern and comes in the midst of all these people. He recognizes old Rembrandt and he says, Rembrandt! And it gets immediately quiet. The people have heard of Rembrandt, they just didn't recognize him. And they stop laughing. And as he gets up to leave, he tells them to enjoy themselves, but to remember the words of King Solomon. And in the last scene, he's alone in the studio. He's completing a self-portrait, looking at himself in a cracked mirror. And he, looking into his reflection, he says, vanity of vanity. All is vanity. All is hevel. All is vapor. All is just here and gone and forgotten. One of the most famous artists in Europe of the last 500 years, by the time of his death, no one even knows his name. We all live, we all get old, we all die, and then time just moves on without us. The vapor nature of life will come for old, and it will come for the young as well. All people will die in due time. But it doesn't 
have to be the way that all people are just naturally and inherently foolish. It's true that there's a certain degree of wisdom that just comes with age. Like experienced sailors who have just been on the boat a long time. They, they know how, to, how and what to do when the winds change just because of their experience on the boat. They've seen it all. Nevertheless, wisdom can be pursued. Wisdom can be acquired in whatever the age. So the preacher is going to conclude his message with two more reflections on wisdom. Two more turns of the same diamond as he's, as he's considering and peering into these same themes that we've seen over the past seven weeks. And then we'll see the compiler of this book, the writer, someone different than the preacher, gives some concluding reflections. So we'll see the first two reflections of the preacher tonight as the actions of wisdom and then the joy of wisdom and then some concluding reflections on the reflections of wisdom. So picking up on Solomon's teaching and emphasis on wisdom in Proverbs, the Solomon character, the preacher, he just follows his lead. And both his turn, it's, in, in, it's his turn now to emphasize wisdom, but and also, like Solomon, to teach us in some short, memorable, pithy, memorizable phrases that we just call Proverbs. These are meant to find their way into our soul that we might remember them later. We might try to define wisdom as the right application of knowledge. A wise person isn't just someone who knows what to do. He's smart or something. In fact, a fool throughout much of the Bible is someone who actually knows what to do, but then just doesn't do it. It's one thing to know what's right. It's another thing to be able to see why it's right and then to act upon it. So like an experienced sailor, uh, the, the preacher here is encouraging us to pursue more wisdom, to pursue what might come ahead and to act accordingly. So let's read a, a short little story at the end of chapter 9 and then move into the Proverbs of chapter 10. The preacher says in verse 13 of chapter 9, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun. And it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise, heard in quiet, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but the fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place. For calmness will lay great offenses to rest. And we don't know who this great king uh, who besieged this city is. We don't know if it's an actual historical event or some uh, like uh, hypothetical parable, a story that the preacher is giving us to just get us to consider. But the point is that while wisdom may go unnoticed, it has the power to save lives. It has the power to sustain civilizations. It has the power to bring down the mighty Foolishness, on the other hand, just says and does whatever sounds right, whatever feels right at the time, and just whatever makes you happy. You want to attack and besiege a kingdom? Just go do it. Uh, whatever feels right, man. The wise man, though, is quiet. He's slow to speak. He's slow to become angry. The fool is just out on the street shouting. He, he's walking down the road. He, we, we see in 
Verse 3, he says to everyone that he is a fool. He's not, per, not necessarily walking around saying, hey, I'm a fool, I'm a fool. Everyone just knows it by what he's saying. He's broadcasting to the world how foolish he is. The wise man, though, in his humility, in his dependence, in his contentment, he's self-controlled. I need to be reminded of this. I need this nearly daily challenge to be reminded to hold my tongue. I can be especially prone to making rash decisions, to making emotional, forming emotional opinions. If you would like to see just an exemplary model of foolishness, uh, just turn on the TV and watch some recaps of what happened in Washington this week. All sides of the hearings just quickly forming opinions and lobbying the first thing that comes into their brains. And then just get on Facebook and Twitter and just see other people uh, just lobbying foolishness, right? Unmeasured emotional opinions. But a fruit of wisdom is someone who holds his tongue in his humility. He seeks the Lord. He seeks the counsel of others. He isn't hasty. He isn't overly emotional. In his deliberateness and self-control, he sees obstacles ahead of him. He makes plans. He can see, and he makes a measured move forward. The preacher will go on in these Proverbs of chapter 10 to describe a man getting hurt by his own work. He just goes barreling into it. He, he falls into a pit that he's digging. He's working in a, he's like fixing a wall, and then there's a snake inside, and he gets bitten by the snake. He's crushed by the very rocks that he's quarrying. He doesn't have the patience or the foresight to see the dangers ahead, and he's just ruined as a result. The fool, on the other hand, or the fool like this man, he, he opens his mouth, he posts on social media everything that pops into his head, he perhaps reads one article and determines that the rest of the world needs to agree with him in his agreement with his article. Slow down, the preacher says. Slow down. Don't go start your work without realizing what dangers lie ahead. He gives us a proverb in verse 10 that would do us all well to memorize. He says, if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Perhaps you didn't quite understand what's going on there on, at first reading that. We've got, a, we've got a guy here chopping down a tree with a dull axe. He thinks that he's going to, he wakes up in the morning, he's got some tree chopping to do. He really ought to go sharpen his axe, but to him, that's a waste of time. He's got work to do. So he just grabs the axe and goes and starts chopping. Preparing patiently is a waste. But then he finds that if he had just taken a bit more time, he would have gotten the job done much more efficiently. With a dull axe, maybe it's taking twice as many axe blows on the tree trunk. Maybe five times, maybe 10 times, maybe 20 times more work and time if he had just taken some time to begin with. The guy's laziness, his lack of foresight is making his life really difficult. It's like chopping trees with a baseball bat or something. That doesn't, that doesn't work. It doesn't work. Where are the areas that we might be chopping trees with a dull axe or perhaps a tool altogether not right for the job, a baseball bat? Where is wisdom not coming out in our lives with plan making? Perhaps your laziness, perhaps you're thinking that things will be wastes of time are actually causing you to work three times, four times, ten times more hard than 
as a result of not planning? Are your grades indicating a lack of forethought, of planning, of diligence? Your performance at work, maybe even a lack of sleep because you're not planning your evenings very well. Perhaps giving three hours of Netflix to an evening instead of just sleeping well because that would actually do you well tomorrow to be more efficient. Perhaps in parenting and discipline, like man, it takes time to discipline your children, doesn't it, parents? Like it just takes time. Like you're, you're out, you're maybe at home or out to eat or something and one kid gets particularly unruly and it would just be a lot easier to not deal with that issue right now. Not to discipline, not to have a difficult conversation. It would just be easier right now to just pass this thing by. Perhaps it doesn't even feel like your kids are responding to your discipline. Maybe you're coming to the conclusion that it just doesn't work anyway. But how's that lack of diligence, how's that lack of taking time with your children actually going? It's actually not easier to ignore disobedience. Better to take time and effort now in correction when they're five and six and seven than when they're 16 and 17 and 18 and 35. That's a near fully formed tree that no baseball bat will ever bring down. Perhaps most of all, in preparing and lack of foresight, Bible reading, prayer, prioritizing time together here on Sundays or in our GCs. Like, all of those things can tend to, from time to time, seem like a waste of time. Like, I could get so much more done on Sundays if I didn't have to carve out, like, this two to four hour block of the evening together. And it didn't really do anything for me last week anyway. Reading the Bible this morning, it didn't really seem to change my life altogether. I could be so much more productive if I wasn't wasting all this time, ignoring the reality that it might take you three to four times more blows with a dull axe to find peace and contentment, to try to find it outside of God, outside of being known by him and through his people, of never finding peace and contentment with like 10,000 baseball bat blows on a tree. A wise man A wise woman has foresight, makes plans. But a wise woman isn't wise because she knows what's coming or knows what the right answer is. She's wise because she sees ahead and then she responds. She acts. Unlike verse 18, chapter 10, through sloth, the roof sinks in. And through indolence, the house leaks. Through laziness, our very houses cave in causing damage to my own life and everyone around me. The wise person works hard, taking responsibility for himself in the present, but also planning for the future. Perhaps even working hard today, not just out of love for himself, but out of love for others and out of love for even future generations. He casts his bread on the waters, 11.1, knowing that he will again find it. He doesn't just bury the things that God has given him out of fear of losing them, but in a kind of like nothing ventured, nothing gained kind of way expects to invest in the things that God has given him. He doesn't just sit on the porch of his farmhouse, like 11.4 describes. He's like watching the Weather Channel app on his phone, waiting for the perfect day to go plant his crops or to harvest them. And really, just to justify his, lazy, his laziness, he makes all kinds of excuses why today's not really the, the right day to go to work. Maybe tomorrow will be a better day 
for me to get some work done. No, he trusts in the goodness and wisdom of God. He gets off of his backside and he goes to work, working hard to provide for himself, not just to be able to pay the bills this month, but to provide for others as well, to be able to be generous. It's impossible to be generous in laziness, to be able to provide for future children, future grandchildren, to be able to provide for others in his church or in his community. It's impossible to move toward that kind of generosity when we're all making excuses of why hard work really isn't for me. I don't particularly enjoy it. Work isn't my passion. The wise man sees into the future, even the future of his coming death, and he works hard as a result in all areas of his life, making plans for the future and responding today. So the actions of wisdom aren't just a result of him wanting to survive, though. He sees the future. He responds. His actions are wise actions of working hard today. But it's not just so that he can survive or to make his tree chopping more efficient or something. The grandpa preacher, he's up there on the porch, and he's telling us to pursue wisdom also. And secondly, not just to survive, but for joy, the joy of wisdom 11.5 through 12.8 is what you heard Amy read earlier. And first, he tells all of the youth to just enjoy their youth. Perhaps you younger folks don't actually need to be reminded of this. Well, some of you do. Perhaps some of you were like I was when I was a teenager. The story that I told you several weeks ago of just kind of wishing my life away, of wishing for the magic little box that I could pull a string and just get to the next better stage of my life. But most of you, I take it, might actually enjoy being 14, 16, 18, 25. You're, there's not a ton of responsibility yet. Your bodies still have a ton of energy. They don't hurt that much or have started to break down. There's a ton of life within you, within me. And shoot, like youth is always relative, right? Like you, you're perhaps giggling because I'm like talking about the young people out there and I'm like a kid, right? Like I think this was true for probably all of us. Like when you were in high school, you looked at 12-year-olds and you're like, oh, I remember when I was 12. So, so immature, so, lack, so, so much experience that they are going to have, right? And then you get to college, you're like, ah, oh, high schoolers, the kids these days, right? And then like when I was in seminary or late 20s, I'm like, man, college kids are college kids. I mean, I like, I like watch a college football game now and I'm like, these are kids, Watching, I'm watching on TV, playing football. They used to seem so old to me. Perhaps many of you think of me as just a kid up here. Youth is always relative. So I think the preacher here is referring to youth as any time in our life that is not old. Is not old age. Any time that your vitality hasn't begun to leave you. And he says, when you are young, to enjoy it. Verse 9, rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But this reminder to young people, myself included, is really not just a reminder, it's a warning. Enjoy your youth while you can. Verse 1, chapter 12. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. We won't read everything here again. 
But over the next several verses in this section, he basically compares our bodies to an aging house falling into greater and greater disrepair. You guys been in an old house, perhaps an old abandoned house? It used to be so nice, so warm, so sturdy, but now they're falling apart. There are holes in the floor, holes in the roof. It's getting drafty, cold, and this is what happens to us all. We've talked about death a lot, so I won't camp out here, but this is why the preacher tells us in the end of chapter 11 and verse 1 of chapter 12 to enjoy our youth when you have it. You're going to get old. You're going to start falling apart. The health and energy that you now have will fade and fade. Your vision, your hearing will fade and fade. It will be more difficult. You'll get old and then you'll eventually die. So enjoy today. And that's not to say that you can't rejoice and enjoy God in your aging years as well. Just take one look at our brothers Byron Banks and John Leinbarger. Praise God for these brothers who are devouring and understanding God's word perhaps more today than they ever have in their lives. Who are seeking to pour into, to disciple younger men in our church. Seriously, can we all praise God for these brothers? But I think that they would be the first to tell you that there are just things that they can't do in their lives today that they could when they were 20 and when they were 30. Yes, they're nodding their heads. Enjoy today. Enjoy every day that you have today, whether you are 12 or 25 or 55 or 85. Every one of these days is a day that God has given to us as a good gift. But enjoying today doesn't mean that you just go live your life however you want, trying to find joy in whatever you want. Remember in chapter 2, what that results in. Depression, anxiety, anything but joy. Living a wise life now as a young man or a young woman actually brings a more joy, joy-filled life, both for today and for tomorrow. If you've been around Christchurch or been around me for any period of time, you've likely heard me say that you'll never be what you aren't becoming. You'll never be what you aren't becoming. If you want to be a joyful old man, a joyful older lady, start now by become a, becoming a joyful young man, a joyful young woman. If you don't pursue wisdom today, you likely will not pursue it tomorrow. John and Byron don't love the Bible today just because, like, I don't know, when they turned 70 or something, the calendar flipped and their birthday happened and then they're like, I think I'll start reading the Bible today. Now they love the Bible today because they loved the Bible for decades. They grew in their love of God's word over decades. They didn't wake up one morning as a patient and wise and kind and gentle, caring, serving, godly older man. They didn't wake up that way. They became that way over decades. You don't stumble into holiness. You don't coast into godliness. You don't just find your way into wisdom. You become that way. You become the way that you will be based on what you are today and what you are tomorrow. You'll never be what you aren't becoming. Today matters. Tomorrow matters for what you'll be when you're 80. It does. Today and tomorrow matters 
for who you are becoming and what you will be when you are 80. So pursue joy, pursue wisdom today, tomorrow. Ask older folks, ask wiser folks. If you're 15, ask somebody who's 25 to hang out with you. If you're 30, ask somebody who's 50. If you're 50, ask John and Byron to hang out with you. Ask them to point out areas of youthful foolishness that they can observe in you and receive it. We are all blind to ourselves. We need others to see us and to correct us. So hear and respond. Today matters. And yet, even still, what is going to happen to us all? Chapter 11, verse 7 and 8. And the dust returns to the earth as it was. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. And this is why one commentator uses this quote to sum up the section. He says, do not seek death. Death will find you. But seek the road which makes death a fulfillment. Seek the road which makes death a fulfillment. Not a time of regret not a time of missed experiences, missed or um, things that you have not poured your energy into that we ought to have. And for those of you who are nearing your older years or perhaps even today when you are 20 or 30, you don't like what you are today. George Eliot once said, it is never too late to be what you might have been. It is never too late to be what you might have been. And today, matters. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. So pursue wisdom today. Pursue joy today because, because death comes tomorrow. If you weren't here last week, maybe go back and catch the sermon on the podcast about death. It was really uplifting. A really, really uplifting sermon last week about death. If you want to consider more there. Okay, let's wrap up this book with the writer's postscript Chapter 12, verses 9 through 14, some, some reflections of wisdom. Verse 9, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails, firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything but beyond these. Of making many books there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. These words we've been reading and thinking about for the past several months are wise, wise words. They are like nails put exactly where they need to be in our souls by God. And I think if you have an ESV, perhaps other translations, I think it's right that the, the word shepherd there at the end of verse 11 is capitalized. I think this is the divine shepherd. These collected sayings that the preacher has given to us, they are given as nails fixed into our souls by the one shepherd. And verse 12 isn't saying to ignore any book beyond, besides Ecclesiastes, right? Beware of anything. Beware of reading anything besides this book. It will waste your time or just make you go crazy. No, that's not what it's saying. It's just saying that, as Doug Wilson says, if we have not been mastered by a short book like this one, the long line of remaining big fat books will be nothing but weariness in the head. And that is true. So before we go running off from this one and on to the next, it will do us all well to let this one, this short 12-chapter book of Ecclesiastes, settle 
for it to nail us to the wall where we need to be nailed to the wall. So with that in mind, here is the final nail that we need to settle well in our souls. In light of all that we know, in light of the fleetingness, the here and gone and forgottenness of everything on earth, including ourselves, the vaporness of everything under the sun, every good thing, every bad thing, here and gone and forgotten like a puff of vapor on a December morning, gone. And yet the sheer goodness and wisdom of a sovereign God who is over the sun. In light of a better understanding that God is God and that we are not. In light of a better understanding that God is in heaven and that we are not. In light of all of that, the compiler of this book says in verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Here it is. Here's the summary. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The end of the matter is not everything is meaningless. Go just have as much fun as you'd like. Or perhaps because of the injustice that you see in the world, just lock yourself into your bedroom because nothing matters. No, the conclusion, the end of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. Why? Well, because throughout the centuries, Christians have used a helpful little Latin phrase to help, them, help themselves remind themselves of reality, of what is true and real. And the phrase is quorum deo. In Latin scholars in the house, quorum deo, which means before the face of God, before the sight of God. And that all of our lives, everything that we not only do, but everything that we not only say, everything that we think, every motive that we have, all of it is before the sight of God. However much we, of all of those things we'd like to hide or just assume that God doesn't see or doesn't care about what he does see, it's true. And it's really, really easy for us to just kind of sit in judgment of others. The ways in which they are living unjustly, we can see others and say, we were talking about tonight in the membership meeting, like, Thank God that I'm not like these kinds of sinners. It's really difficult, though. It becomes next to impossible to find ourselves as morally superior when the movie of every one of our actions, every one of our words, deeds, thoughts, and motives are on a screen behind you, playing back for all to see. Like, how in the world could we possibly look down our noses in moral superiority of others if every bit of our lives were exposed? And so, if humility, a right understanding of ourselves as small and finite and created vapor beings, if humility is one of the things that the preacher has been trying to get us to understand in this book, then a quorum deo, understanding of reality, ought to help. That every bit of our lives are seen and before the face of God. This helps us, reminds us of who we are. There will be judgment, finally and fully, when for millennia it has looked like the unjust are winning, that God doesn't care. The preacher has said and says this will not be true forever. There will be judgment. God does care. He cares deeply. He cares so deeply that he will hold to account every one of our secret thoughts. 
every one of our hidden deeds. And that's what a growing understanding of a big God and a small me should bring, humility. And so knowing that God sees and cares ought to bring a healthy fear, ought to bring obedience. Just as Clint explained from the beginning of our service, the fear of God is not cowering terror, especially for those who are his, who are his adopted sons and daughters, but perhaps for those who are not his sons and daughters, who don't quite know what to do with the reality that every secret thought and deed will be made known. That might actually be terrifying. The idea of the movie of your life being played back on a screen behind you for the whole world to see, that's a terrifying reality. Not only the movie of your life, but how about we just play back the movie of the last 30 minutes of your life? You haven't done a lot. You've been sitting here. But perhaps the motives and thoughts of your brain, of your mind, as your mind has wandered or something. How would we like to play back the movie of your thoughts? That's terrifying for some of us. The movie is too horrible. The list is too long. It's too shameful. It's too condemning. It's too embarrassing. And we don't have any idea what to do with that list, with that movie. All of this is why we need the entirety of the Bible to shape us. Much of the Old Testament is about posing questions, is about introducing tension that can only be resolved with the answers of the New Testament. We can't really understand the wisdom that Solomon is explaining in the book of Proverbs or that the preacher is explaining here in Ecclesiastes until Jesus shows up on the, she- on the scene. Like other Jewish teachers before him, he offers and models what wisdom looks like. But then as Paul tells us, Jesus is the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God that was perhaps hidden is now made known. The wisdom of God that looks like foolishness, but that the way to power is through humility. The way to life is through death. So while it's true that in that the preacher tells us to pursue wisdom and in the Proverbs, Solomon tells us to get wisdom above all else. Get wisdom, everybody. This is what you need. Get it. Get wisdom. On this side of the cross, we can interpret Solomon to say, get Jesus. Above all else, get Jesus. He is the wisdom of God and knowing him will and it will bring more and more wisdom in the world. But this is the wisdom of God. Know him, love him, cherish him, worship him. Do not let him go. But it's also difficult for us to know what to do with the miles-long list of offenses that we have committed. What to do with the decades-long movie of our lives being broadcast don't know what to do with our consciences that accuse us. While there's undoubtedly grace, mercy, patience, forgiveness, covenant throughout all the Old Testament, perhaps we don't really quite know what to do with the end of Ecclesiastes. This idea of God bringing every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil, perhaps that's a terrifying reality. There's not much Hope of forgiveness there for me as I close this book. We are introducing questions 
introducing tension that then can be resolved when Jesus walks onto the scene, when he institutes a new covenant that will not only forgive us in his life and in his death, but will make us the very sons and daughters of God. The entire book of Hebrews is trying to unpack the glories of Christ, the glories of this new covenant against the limited ways of the old. The author of Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers, Christ Church, therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Despite every secret deed and thought being made known, approach, draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. While your hevel vapor lives are here and gone and forgotten, he is not. The one over the sun who created the sun and created you is eternal. And for those of you who have anchored your lives, your eternity to him, who can confidently say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Your life now has meaning. Your life now has assurance despite the secret deeds. Can even have a clean conscience can have joy and obedience, not just duty and obligation. We can't really understand and love the idea of quorum Deo, of before the sight of God, until we understand and love Jesus. Because what Peter says in 1 Peter 1 is true. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Is that true? No one, not one of us has actually seen Jesus in the flesh, and yet in faith we love him. But here's the best part. Here's the best part. Christian, though he has seen you, despite all that he has seen, he loves you. It is good news that though you have not seen him, you love him. But it is far better news that though he has seen you, he loves you. He's not overlooking the messy parts, but loving you through the messy parts. Through the fear, through the anxiety, through the faithlessness, through the sin, loving you, taking you, comforting you, accepting you just as you are. But then, because of his extremely devoted committedness to you, not leaving you just as you are. But in making you a new creation, starting the work of transformation that extends into eternity. Christian, Jesus is committed to you. He loves you and will not give up on you. Approach, draw near with full assurance of faith. Are you trusting him? Are you, are you confident of your love or of his love for you. Not because of all the good that you've done. Not because you have a better movie of your life than many others in the world. But because of his death for you. Not theoretically. 
Not theologically, I can understand that Jesus died for sinners, and then I guess I'm a part of that group of sinners, but that he died for me. He has cleansed my conscience and has made me a son or daughter of the high king of heaven. My life is so short. It will be gone and forgotten within a hundred years. No one will remember my name. All of it will be so quickly forgotten, but like the dying thief on the cross next to Jesus, might we all say, might we all say, though the entire world may forget me, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. Let's let this short little book master our soul and point us to Christ together that we might boldly approach the throne of grace with a full assurance of faith, a full assurance of cleansing. That while we are here and gone and we will soon be dead, he lives forevermore and we can have life with him for eternity. Let's thank him for this book. Our Father, we are thankful that you have, in your wisdom, saw to it to give us this book. We need it. We need each book of your word to us. Each one of them give us, gives us something new that we would not have without it. And we are thankful for teaching us, for reminding us that we are but vapor, that we are not the main character of this universe. We're not even the main character of this church or even of our homes and our houses, but that we are but vapor. Help us remember. Teach us to number our days. Help us to pursue wisdom, to pursue joy, to pursue Christ today. Lord Jesus, thank you for living for us, for dying for us, for cleansing us, for pardoning us. And Father, thank you for adopting us in your wisdom, in your care, in your kindness, in your mercy, in your grace, for pardoning us, for welcoming us as your children. We're thankful for all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.